Our message comes to us this morning from 1 Corinthians 10, verses 14 through 22. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray now that you would focus our attention upon your word and the message of this text, Lord. We pray that by your Holy Spirit you would take hold of our mind and that you would help us to rightly understand your word. We pray that you would enable us to put out of our minds all of the cares and the worries and the distractions of this world and of this life, and that this would be your time. And We pray that you would speak to us this morning through your word. Allow us to hear the voice of God. Allow us to see more of your glory. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. During World War II, and, uh, and really leading up to World War II in uh, Germany during the 1930s, uh, one of the things that uh, greatly upset uh, many devout uh, evangelical Christians who were living in Germany throughout uh, the 1930s, uh, particularly as they continued to, uh, to, uh, to deal with, uh, as they, as, as, uh, Hitler referred to it the, the Jewish problem. Um, as, that, uh, as the solutions became worse and worse throughout the 1930s, one of the things that greatly upset many evangelical uh, Christians was the way in which their neighbors, professing Christians, would you know, gladly do business with uh, the Nazi government or even uh, would uh, visit uh, storefronts or retailers where they knew that business had previously been owned by a Jewish family and they were forcibly removed, and then that business was then given uh, to a German family that uh, went in and basically took it over. And, of course, the Jewish family was sent off to uh, a a German uh, concentration camp. And this was difficult. Many Christians wrestled with what what do you do uh, with that situation, and I've read many accounts 
of uh, you know, Christians, professing evangelicals, who would visit grocery stores as an example that, where they knew that it was previously owned by a Jewish family and was simply taken from them, and then this family just happened to disappear and nobody knows uh, where they went. And of course, there were two sides to that argument. There were those on the one side who said, look, you know, I, I don't agree with what is happening to our Jewish neighbors. I, I think it's wrong. Um, but nonetheless, I, I've got to buy groceries. And it doesn't make any sense to go all the way across town uh, with the cost of food. Uh, obviously, the 1930s, there was a worldwide depression going on with the cost of food, the cost of fuel. It doesn't make any sense to go all the way across town to buy from another grocery store. And uh, besides that, not buying from this one grocery store isn't going to change anything. It isn't going to cause the Nazi government to stop what they're doing. It isn't going to make any kind of impact. I am just uh, one person, and uh, so I, I don't see the harm ultimately in doing that. Of course, the other side of that argument said that to support those businesses is to condone their behavior and thus become an active participant in their behavior. And there are people who disagreed with that argument. But this is what led Dietrich Bonhoeffer to make his famous quote that many have heard before. He said that silence in the face of evil is evil itself. And he was greatly upset. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was greatly upset and wrote about it and spoke out against it. He was greatly upset by the number of Christians, the number of churches, the number of ministers in Germany who preached from behind the pulpit and thought that the best response is to simply pray for the Nazi government. You know, we'll just, we'll just we'll pray for them. You know, we don't agree with them, so we're going to pray for them, but there's, there's no need to inconvenience ourselves because... You know, going all the way across town to shop at another grocery store really isn't going to change anything. And so there's no need to inconvenience ourselves. And there is certainly no need to say or do anything that might draw the unwanted attention of the Nazi government. Of course, Bonhoeffer took a decidedly different approach. He believed that something had to be actively done to end what he knew was evil. Of course, it ended up causing him his life. It costed, cost him his life. He was, of course, um, put to death by uh, the Nazis three weeks before Germany surrendered, and he was 39 years old. Um, in our text this morning, Paul is dealing with an amazingly similar situation in Corinth. And, and so I say that, and uh, my intro, uh, I used what I just talked about as my intro, because oftentimes, you know, we can read passages like this, verses 14 to 22, um, or even when we looked at chapter 8, for example, and we can think, you know, it's great to delve into the theology of all of this and what was happening at that time, but it, there is little application for us today, because we don't... We don't, you know, we're not wrestling with 
idolatry. We're not wrestling with eating food that has been offered to idols in an idol temple or whatever the case may be. And, uh, and so there's, there's, there's almost no real application for us uh, today um, because we don't, we don't wrestle with idolatry, or do we? I think this text has a lot of application for us today. And so Paul says in verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee from, there's his main point. Flee from idolatry. And I titled the sermon that as well because I think that that same message applies to all of us, that we need to flee from idolatry. But first of all, to give it context, notice the word therefore is there again in our text, which tells us that Paul is uh, connecting what he's about to say back with verses 1 to 13. Okay, verses 1 to 13 provide the groundwork for verses 14 to 22. Uh, That is that all of the things that Israel did wrong, okay, as you read verses 1 to 13, Paul gives numerous uh, illustrations of all of the things that Israel did wrong, all of the sins that they committed against God, sins for which God punished them, come down to this, idolatry. Paul sees it all as idolatry, not just the golden calf event, but the murmuring against God is idolatry. The desiring to go back to Egypt is idolatry. The coveting, the food that they were missing back in Egypt is idolatry. And this is because Paul sees, uh, for example, from Ephesians 5, verse 5, that idolatry is covetedness. Covetedness is idolatry. In the mind of Paul, idolatry and covetedness are two sides of the same coin. Which is why I asked the question when I said, we don't struggle with idolatry today, do we? Or do we? Because idolatry is covetedness. Why is that? Well, first of all, Let's define what idolatry is. You see, because idolatry is not just bowing down before a statue, kissing its feet, lighting a candle to it, praying to it, although that is the most grievous and one of the most blatant forms of idolatry, that is not, um, that is not only what idolatry is. Rather, idolatry, if you rightly understand the first and second commandments of the Ten Commandments, idolatry is valuing someone else or something else more than we value God. That's idolatry. And my friends, actions speak louder than words. Because if you go to every If you go to every evangelical Christian and were to ask them, is there anything in this world that you value more than God, the answer is going to be what? No. But we demonstrate regularly by our actions, by the way that we use our time, by our behavior, by the treatment of others, that we have many, many idols of 
the heart. There are many things in this world as Christians that we value more than we value God. That is idolatry. Thus, in Paul's mind, all of the examples that he lists in verses 1 to 13 all comes down to this, idolatry, which is why he starts verse 14 the way he does. Therefore, my beloved, flee idolatry. Don't engage in idolatry for which Israel was punished by God. As Christians, as I said, we do engage in idolatry. When we choose not to come to church, but rather attend a sporting event, idolatry. We choose not to attend church, but do something that's important to our kids instead, idolatry. When we would rather turn on the television than spend time in God's word, when we know the Holy Spirit is probing us, you've not read the Bible today, you've not spent time in prayer today, you've not spent time in God's word today, yes, but my favorite show is about to come on. Idolatry. When we would rather read a novel than read something that might teach us more about God, idolatry. And while God's anger and wrath will not be poured out upon his people, thankfully, according to Romans 325, when it talks about the fact that Christ died as a propitiation for our sins, it means that Christ fully satisfied the wrath of God the Father for all those whom he, for whom he died. There is no wrath and anger left for the people of God, for those who put faith in Christ. Nevertheless, Hebrews 12, verses 7 and following tells us that God does discipline his children. But if you read that passage, if you read that passage in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7 to the end, it never talks about the anger of God. It doesn't talk about the wrath of God. But because God loves us, because God loves his children, he will discipline his children when we engage in idolatry. So Paul's main point is flee from it. Flee from idolatry. But here's the question that he has to answer for the church in Corinth. How are they engaging in idolatry? Because he doesn't, he does, you know, they, they, as far as we can tell, they aren't still going to idol temples and worshiping idols and bowing down to them and doing all of the pagan things that their pagan neighbors are doing. So how are they engaging in idolatry? Paul tells them to flee from it. In the mind of the reader, they're going to wonder, what, what, Paul, we're not going to the idol temples. What do you mean flee from idolatry? And so at this point, Paul is going to offer two illustrations in support of his argument. The argument being, number one, they are engaging in a form of idolatry. And number two, they need to flee from it. He's going to offer two illustrations. The first is drawn from their understanding of the Lord's Supper. And we'll see that in verses 15, 16, and 17. 
The second illustration he's going to offer them is drawn from the Old Testament sacrificial system, and we'll see that in verses 18, 19, and 20, or at least into the first half of verse 20. After he does that, Paul will offer them a conclusion. He'll draw a conclusion from these two illustrations. So he starts with an imperative, a command, flee idolatry. There's the imperative. He then is going to offer them two illustrations to make his argument. And then he'll end with a a conclusion from these. And so he says, verse 14 and 15, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. Judge for yourselves what I say. So Paul, in verse 15, is not not being sarcastic when he says, I speak to sensible people. He doesn't mean that. He's trying to tell them that, look, what I'm about to say to you is a very clear and easy-to-understand argument. Just follow the logic, okay? I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I am saying. So then he begins with his first illustration in verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So here, Paul is clearly reminding them of what he has already taught them uh, because there's no mention of the Lord's Supper prior to this. Right? So he, he seems to be reminding them of something that they already know. He hasn't taught them anything so far in this text. So either in the prior letter that Paul wrote to them or in the time that he spent with them, surely he would have taught them about the Lord's Supper. They had some understanding of it because we'll see when we get to the end of chapter 11, beginning in verse 17, that the church in Corinth had a practice of, of uh, observing the sacrament of the Lord's Supper every Sunday, every Lord's Day. So they knew it was important, and they practiced it every week. And so Paul is simply reminding them of uh, certain theological truths that they were probably already aware of. He's reminding them of certain theological truths regarding the Lord's Supper. And that is, when we partake in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, he is reminding them that uh, in a spiritual, yet in a very real way, in a spiritual, yet in a very real, real way, we participate, we actually participate in the blood and the body of Christ. That this is not just uh, a spiritual thing going on. It, it, it is an actual reality that takes place. Now, this is not... We're not talking about transubstantiation here. This is part of where the Roman Catholic Church gets their doctrine of transubstantiation. And that is the idea that when, when the priest holds up the elements and he says the, the special words, that the bread and the wine literally become the, the blood and flesh of Jesus Christ. They literally are transformed into actual flesh and blood. They get that from, this is one of the places they get it from, uh, the cup of blessing that we bless. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? They also get it from the words of Christ himself. When Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, he says, this is my 
body. This is my blood. So in some sense, this actually becomes the body and blood of Christ. Now, a little history on the Protestant Reformation. Uh, Martin Luther uh, disagreed with that um, because it still looks like bread and it still looks like wine and it tastes like it and it feels like it and it smells like it. And the Roman Catholic Church would say, yes, but that's simply because your senses fail to observe what is actually being held in your hand. They may look like bread and wine, but they're not. They are actually flesh and blood. You just don't know it. Luther thought that was just cockamamie. Nevertheless, he understood that when Jesus said, this is my blood and this is my body, that in some sense that had to be true. And when Paul wrote the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? In some sense, that had to be true that this is the blood and the body of Christ. So Luther argued that Christ came down from heaven and entered the elements, and so that when we take the Lord's Supper, we are actually drinking and feeding on Christ himself who is now present in the elements. This is known as consubstantiation. And so Luther argued that it's still bread and wine. It doesn't change, which is why it tastes like bread and wine. But Christ is actually in the elements. The problem with that view that uh, Calvin rightly argued is that Christ, the second person of the Trinity, is not omnipresent. Christ remains in bodily form, seated at the right hand of God the Father, So how can he be in every element in every church around the world on every Lord's day? Christ, the second person of the Trinity, remains in bodily form in heaven at the right hand of God the Father. Nevertheless, I think Calvin rightly understood that somehow we must be eating and drinking Christ because of this text. So how do we explain that? Well, Calvin explained it this way, and I'll read a quote to you. This was in, this is from one of his many tracts and letters that he wrote, which was, they were all republished by Banner of Truth Trust in 2009. Uh, Calvin wrote many letters and little booklets. And he says this regarding the Lord's Supper. Quote, the same body, the same body, therefore, which the Son of God once offered to the Father in sacrifice, he daily offers in the supper as spiritual food. Only, as I lately hinted, we must hold in regard to the mode that it is not necessary that the essence of the flesh should descend from heaven. Christ doesn't come down from heaven. It is not necessary that the essence of the flesh should descend from heaven in order to our being fed upon it. The virtue of the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, the virtue of the Spirit being sufficient to break through all of the impediments and surmount any distance of place. Meanwhile, we deny Not that this mode is incomprehensible to the human mind. 
because neither can flesh naturally be the life of the soul, nor exert its power upon us from heaven, nor without reason is the communion which makes us flesh of the flesh of Christ and bone of his bones, called by the apostle Paul a great mystery, Ephesians 5.30. Therefore, in the sacred supper, we acknowledge a miracle which surpasses both the limits of nature and the measure of our sense. In other words, I think he is right, that Christ remains in heaven in bodily form. However, in a spiritual sense, by means of the Holy Spirit, he does inhabit the elements. But not in a physical sense, he's not there. Physically, he remains in heaven. So no, we are not physically, literally drinking his blood or eating his flesh. Yet in a very spiritual and real way, we are consuming Christ when we take him in. At the end of the day, Calvin, I think, rightly argued that it's a mystery. It's something that we receive in faith, but he was convinced that the Zwinglian view, Ulrich Zwingli's view, was not correct either, and that is that the Lord's Supper is purely symbolic. It's just a picture. There's no real spiritual dimension to it. That is a mistake as For this reason, we'll talk about this later, that Paul issues such a strong warning against taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. We'll see that, and we'll talk about that when we get to chapter 11, verses 27 to 32. Because unlike baptism, when we partake in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, we are actually in a spiritual yet very real way sitting down at the table with Christ. Unbelievers dare not do that. Unbelievers dare not sit at the table of Christ. And so this is what makes the sacrament of baptism and the Lord's Supper so different. But why do I call it a sacrament? I want to I mention that because particularly in a church like this, you know, when I, when I use that word, um, Baptists and independent Christians tend to cringe because it sounds very Catholic. It sounds very Lutheran. Why do we call it the sacrament? Why don't we just call it the Lord's Supper? Because it's a great word, and, uh, and it carries great meaning. It comes from the Latin sacramentum, and it was used in the old Latin Vulgate to translate the Greek word for mystery, mysterion, uh, because the Lord's Supper at the end of the day is a mystery in how, how it is a means of grace to believers which is why Augustine referred to the sacraments. He said the sacraments are a visible sign of invisible grace. And we'll talk about that when we get to the Lord's Supper at the end of chapter 11. So how this works is not entirely clear, but the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper are a means of grace. It's a mystery at the end of the day, but they are a means of grace. And so Paul goes on to say in verse 17, And he offers an explanation for what he just said at the end of verse 16. The bread that we break is not a participation in the body of Christ. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And so here he's offering an explanation. Until now, Paul has not dealt in this book. Paul has not dealt with the reality that all believers are one body. 
He'll get to that when we get to chapter 12. He'll deal with that very clearly in verses 12 and 13 and verse 20. But really, a large portion of um, chapter 12 uh, is all about the fact that all believers are the body of Christ. And that's another great mystery because Christ, Christ is in heaven, seated at the right hand of God the Father in bodily form, yet in a real way, all believers are also the body of Christ. We truly are the body of Christ. That's not just poetic language. It's not just metaphorical. It is a theological and spiritual reality that exists. And so Paul will explain that further there. But his point in verse 17 is that the partaking of one bread conveys two realities. Number one, we all feed off of Christ and are spiritually sustained by him. When we take the Lord's Supper, we are all feeding off of Christ. In a very real sense, we are taking Christ into us. And number two, we are all members of one body. We are all members of the body of Christ. But here's the point. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, which reminds us of Christ's sacrifice, we are participating in that sacrifice. In some way, we participate in the sacrifice of Christ, which took place 2,000 years ago. But nonetheless, we become active participants in that. That is Paul's point that he is making in verses 16 and 17. He then moves on to his second illustration to make his point in verses 18 to 20. And he says this in verse 18, Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. Are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. Now, he's likely referring to uh, various Old Testament texts that uh, with certain sacrifice, certain offerings, the person offering it uh, was actually commanded to take part of the sacrifice and to consume it themselves. Uh, We know that that was true of the guilt offering. We see that in Leviticus chapter 7, verse 6, that uh, when uh, a person uh, brought a guilt offering for themselves or when the high priest offered a guilt offering for the nation of Israel, he was to take some of it and actually eat it. And him and his fellow priests were to eat it within, within the temple. We also see in Leviticus chapter 7, verse 15, that when any person brought a peace offering to the Lord, which was just peace offerings were done at any time. It was just a way of giving thanks to God, of worshiping God. You could bring a peace offering whenever you wanted. But when someone brought a peace offering to the Lord, they were commanded to take some of that offering and to eat it themselves. They were to consume some of it. Paul's point is that in doing so, they became participants in the sacrifice. Are you following the logic? When we eat the sacrament of the the, the Lord's Supper, we become participants in the sacrifice that took place 2,000 years ago. In the Old Testament, when they ate part of the sacrifice, they became participants in that sacrificial offering that was taking place, that ceremonial uh, event that was taking place. So again, Paul's point is that in doing so, they become participants in the sacrifice. However, Paul quickly recognizes that it may sound like he's walking back his comments from chapter 8, right? That he's contradicting himself. 
Uh, because remember, what Paul, Paul has already dealt with eating food that has been offered to idols. And let me remind you of what he says. Back in chapter 8, verse 4, he said this, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. He goes on to say in verses 7 and 8, However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and we are no better off if we do eat. So Paul says right there that, look, idols really are nothing. They're not real. There's no gods that lie behind them. So eating the food offered to them doesn't, you know, uh, separate us from God and refraining from it doesn't commend us to God uh, because idols are nothing. So Paul, now in chapter 10, realizes that his readers, by this time, that they, by this point in chapter 10, could easily begin thinking to themselves, okay, so what are you saying, Paul? I mean, first you said eating food offered to idols isn't a thing because they don't exist, and now you're saying it is a thing? Like this is something we should be worried about because they're offered to idols? I mean, you sound like you're contradicting yourself. You sound like you're You're walking back your statements. Paul, being the keen writer that he is, recognizes that, and he actually says that in verse 19. Look at what he says in verse 19. So what do I mean then, that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything, right? Is that what I'm saying? Am I changing my position now that that maybe it is a thing uh, and you should be worried about that? The answer's in verse 20, no. I am implying that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. In other words, the reason that is given in chapter 8 by Paul not to eat food that is offered to idols or not to eat food um, uh, in an idol's temple for sure, certainly don't eat the food in the idol's temple, but don't even eat food that has been offered to idols is that it might offend your brother's conscience and cause them to stumble. That's his reason back there. He says that again in verse 7 and then 9 to 12. However, not all possess this knowledge. This is chapter 8, verse 7. Not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. And uh, now skip down to verse 9. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge that idols aren't real, and this, you know, they don't exist. If, uh, if someone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged? And if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sitting against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. He'll, and so his concern there is that you don't want to offend your brother's conscience, possibly cause him to eat food offered to idols. And then he's going to feel guilty, and then he might stop going to church. He might turn away from Christ because he feels like he's committed the unpardonable sin. You don't want to be responsible for that, so be considerate of your brother and sister's conscience. He'll actually return to that reason at the end of chapter 10 in verses 23 to 30. 
But here in chapter 10, verses 14 to 22, Paul is offering a second reason why they should not eat food that has been offered to idols. And that is, uh, Paul is offering a second reason to not eat uh, food offered to idols is that although there are no other gods, here's his point, although there are no other gods, there are no gods behind these idols, these things aren't real, and thus these idols are only statues, right? They're just statues at the end of the day. There are demonic forces which lie behind these idols. There are demonic forces that lie behind all of this pagan idolatry practice, all of this pagan idol practice that they engage in and the sacrifices and the meat that they are offering. There are demons, and this is a demonic practice that they are engaged in. Hence his conclusion in the second half of verse 20. I do not want you to be participants with demons. By buying the food, eating the food, you are participating in the evil that they engage in. Even though you may say to yourself, but I don't, I don't believe what they believe. I don't agree with what they're doing. It's not idol worship to me. I just like the meat. Paul says, you are engaging in demon worship. This is why they should not eat the food, which they know has been offered to idols, for to do so is to engage in extremely dangerous Acts, verses 21 to 22. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord, the sacrament, the Lord's Supper. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? In other words, Paul wants them to understand it is dangerous. It is dangerous to participate in idolatry, to participate in demon worship. How? Simply by buying the food and eating the food that has been offered to idols in the pagan temples. It is dangerous to participate in idolatry and in demon worship and then come to church and partake in the Lord's To do so will bring upon that person the judgment of God. That's what Paul is going to talk about at the end of chapter 11, verses 29 and 30. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. He's talking about the Lord's Supper. This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died, and some have even died. Now you know why, part of why I give a warning Uh, before taking the Lord's Supper to unbelievers who might be visiting in our church because Paul says this is dangerous to partake in the cup of demons, to sit at the table of demons, and then come to church and to, to approach the Lord's table is to invite the wrath and the anger and the judgment of God. Paul's point to them 
is simply this. Though you know idols are not real, and you yourself are not worshiping idols or demons, but are simply purchasing the food and eating the food which has been offered to idols, you also know that they are engaging in evil. They are engaging in a demonic practice. Thus, to participate in that, this is what Paul is saying, to participate in that, to purchase that food, to eat that food, is to be complicit in the evil in which they are engaged. I think this is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer understood. This has enormous applications for us today, doesn't it? Because the unbelieving world that we do business with is becoming increasingly more vocal and aggressive about the evil that they engage in behind the scenes. I mean, there was a time when most businesses wanted to keep that stuff hidden because they were afraid they'd lose customers. We just, you know, we just want to provide a product and a service, and what we do with our profits, well, you know, keep that hush, hush. We're trying to make money. It's a goal. More and more businesses don't seem to care whether or not they lose customers, and they are becoming more and more vocal and aggressive about the evil in which they are engaged in. And as Christianity becomes more and more persona non grata in the United States, Christians are increasingly going to be faced with difficult choices to make. Many of the same choices that Christians living in Germany had to face. What do we do? Now, I'm not going to sit here and give any clear direction about things that I know you're thinking that you know what I'm talking about. That's between you and God. But I will say this, based on this text, based on this text, Paul is saying this. It simply will not do to say to God, but I don't agree with what they're doing. I don't believe in what they're doing. I don't really support what they're doing I just like the product or the service that they provide. That, that's all. And I'll pray for them and hope that God changes them somehow. Paul makes it clear to the church in Corinth that just to say, well, I don't agree with all of what they do in the temples. I just like to eat the steak. It's really good. Paul says to do so is to be implicit, to be complicit in the evil in which they participate in And he says, don't do it. Let's pray. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that you would give us wisdom as we live in a nation that is becoming increasingly more hostile to Christianity that is becoming increasingly more evil and at enmity against you and anything that represents you. 
So, Father, we pray that you would give us wisdom as you tell us, as Christ told us in Matthew chapter 10, that we would be as, as, a, as shrewd as serpents, but as innocent as lambs. Um, pray that you would give us guidance as we navigate these turbulent times and that you would help us and enable us to flee from idolatry, to not participate in idolatry, to not participate in the evil that the world portrays as good. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So go to the Lord's Supper.